Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. First, thanks to all those who contributed during our fundraiser and those who contributed enough enthusiasm to bring the drive to a close ahead of schedule. Thank you. If you missed your chance to contribute, it's never too late. Visit kpfa.org where you can still choose from our irresistibly tempting array of thank you gifts. Two interviews today, both in European politics, one gloomy, Germany, and one not, Britain. In a minute, we'll hear from the Brooklyn-based journalist Lucas Hermsmeyer about the politics of Germany after Sunday's election. And at the bottom of the hour, a return appearance by the writer and activist Margaret Corvid, who's been at the Labor Party's annual conference. First, Germany. On Sunday, September 24, Germany held nationwide elections. Continuing a global theme, the establishment parties lost a lot of their vote share. The ruling party, the Christian Democrats, which has a sister party, the Christian Social Union, which runs candidates only in Bavaria, won with 33% of the vote, down nine points in the last election. Number two were the Social Democrats, the SPD in its German initials, with 21% of the vote, down five points. The surprise gainer, the right-wing alternative for Germany, AFD in German, up eight points from the last election. It will be the first far-right party to have seats in the Bundestag, the lower house of parliament, in 80 years. Of course, that party 80 years ago was the Nazis. The small Free Democrat Party, which is liberal in the European sense, meaning pro-free market, got 11% of the vote, more than twice their share last time. The left party's share was little changed at just over 9%, and the same was true of the Greens, with just under 9%, little change. Angela Merkel will almost certainly retain her chancellorship, but she's going to have to scramble to assemble a coalition government from an array of unlikely partners. The shocker, of course, is that despite claims to the contrary, Germany is not immune to the right populist wave. The immunity that resulted from the Nazi experience looks to be wearing off after all these decades. AFD is led by a former Christian Democrat, Alexander Gauland, age 76, and Elise Weidel, literally half his age, a former Goldman Sachs banker who, perhaps surprisingly, is an out lesbian. The far right is shedding some of its old skin. There's a video of her speaking to a party rally in which she announces her lesbianism, and then, to the applause of the audience, note that no one has walked out, giving a lie to the story that the party is homophobic. Fair enough, but it sure is xenophobic, and scarily so. It's striking how often the far right arises where the left has lost its nerve. The Social Democrats have shed social democracy in favor of neoliberalism, and their voters are deeply disillusioned by this. Under the SPD government of Gerhard Schroeder in the 90s, Germany created a big low-wage labor market, including what are called mini-jobs, which probably stimulated employment growth, but of the highly precarious kind you might expect from a mini-job. Over the last couple of years, the Merkel government admitted close to 400,000 refugees fleeing war and disintegration in the Middle East. This was not received well by the population, and Merkel and her party have suffered the consequences. Here's Lucas Hermsmeyer, a Brooklyn-based freelance journalist who writes for Die Welt, Zeit Online, Der Tagesspiegel, The Nation, and The New York Times, with more. Lucas Hermsmeyer. Did the results surprise you, or is it pretty much what you expected? No, the results actually didn't really surprise me. Um, what did surprise me was the uh, loss of the Social Democrats, for example, um, and the victory for the Liberals. But I didn't expect the alternative for Germany to be uh, any like uh, weaker than this. Tell us about the party. When was it founded and what do they stand for? So the AfD got, was founded in 2013. And first of all, uh, first of all, it was an anti-Euro party. And then um, with like um, a huge amount of refugees entering Germany in 2015 and 16, 
this party turned into an anti-immigration party and got stronger and stronger. So they won um, all the state, uh, they won in the state elections um, uh, during the last years, got into 13, I guess, of 16 state parliaments now. And so this victory uh, in the federal election is just like consequent in a sense. Several news reports pointed out that this uh, was the first right-wing party to have any parliamentary representation uh, in, in 80 years. <laughs> that, that previous uh, right-wing party, of course, was the Nazis. How do Germans read and how does the party handle uh, that Nazi heritage? Do they embrace it, run away from it, think it's irrelevant? So the party itself is not embracing it. They are like um, opposing the idea that they are Nazis, although they are like constantly working uh, with Nazi rhetorics and uh, constantly and like are not too far away from some policies. Um, in Germany, I think we see like a different uh, responses to that. Like some people are uh, mainly the voters are disappointed to be like to put in this category, right? They, have, they are frustrated with their economic situation and uh, feel alienated and don't want to um, be put as Nazis. But um, so there's a split among the German uh, population, I guess. What is the base for the party? What the social base? What kind of people vote for AFD? So what we saw um, <clears throat> during the, or like in this election and in the former state election is that it's um, stronger in former East Germany. It's uh, strong among men, middle-aged men, I guess, and um, among like working among the working class. But I'm, I'm also convinced that this like analysis would be a bit under complex because um, what we've seen uh, after the US election is that this idea that only the Rust Belt and the alienated uh, um, population in the US voted for Trump was um, simply untrue, right? We also, we got, um, we have like lawyers uh, in, in, in Berlin who voted for AfD, if we go back to Germany now, we got um, urban, uh, uh, like uh, wealthy people uh, who vote uh, AfD. So there is like a, there's a stronger base in Eastern Germany and among the working class and among men, definitely among men, but that's not um, the whole, like the, the only thing, right? The people who vote for AFD, what do they think the party will do for them? I think, um, first of all, they, um, they, they hope that um, Germany is like decreasing the, the, the amount of refugees coming in and that they are like uh, installing more law and order policies, more security, more, that's the main, one of the main um, um, hopes. Does AFD have any kind of economic policy? I mean, they're like um, saying that they are standing for the for the kleine Mann, as we say, for the little man, for the working class. But if you look at the program, it's not really they don't want to like increase um, taxes for wealthy people, for example. So it's a bit um, it's it's a bit uh, um, um, there's like a lot of uh, hypocrisy going on because um, their policies would not even uh, not really like benefit the uh, working class, for example. Well, the leadership is interesting, right? Um, uh, first was Frauke Petri. Was that the name of the leader? Mm -hmm. Frauke Petri just left the party yesterday. Yeah, what's that about? Tell us about her and, and then this, the party split that's developed recently. Well, I guess Frauke Petri, and that might sound weird, but like has seen this party turning more and more to the far right and um, more and more like hardline. And um, she doesn't want to um, engage with that anymore. So she kind of like in a... In an act of irresponsibility, and you know, like like 
cowardness, I guess, uh, uh, stepped away and saying now this turn and the, 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 the new AfD, anti-immigration, is not what I or she joined some years ago and found. So I'm not pitying the, the, the AfD leadership at all, but I don't think that that was like a very brave um, moment or like a very brave um, yeah, decision, Petri. How is the party now different from what her original vision was? I mean, isn't there a great continuity between what uh, she once advocated and what they're advocating now? I think the party has turned more and more uh, far right over the last four years. And it was the, the, the core of the party in the very beginning was anti-euro and the um, core now is anti-immigration. I guess Frau Kopeti is supporting this uh, anti-immigration uh, idea, but not as strong. And she like... Um, opposed some rhetorics of her former now former colleagues. Uh, Björn Höcke, for example, was um, speaking about the German past. Uh, um, uh, Gauland, uh, the, the two leaders, Gauland and Weidel, are constantly using like racist uh, rhetorics, and I think she doesn't want to um, be identified with that anymore. The German past is that a euphemism for Nazis? Yeah, exactly. And uh, the idea is that Germans should stop feeling guilty about that. Yeah, to some extent. Um, there was like a famous speech um, in January in Dresden, um, I guess, where uh, Björn Höcke, um, one of the like more prominent like uh, um, uh, politicians of AfD, was um, saying that Germany should stop atoning for, for the Nazi past. And, the, for example, the Holocaust Memorial in, in Berlin um, shouldn't be that central. So that's, that's one of the ideas uh, the AfD um, has. And now uh, the new leadership, but you mentioned two people. Uh, tell us about them. So there's um, Alexander Gauland, uh, a former conservative politician who was a member of the CDU for years and also a journalist. And he um, joined the AfD and is um, uh, just like a very, um, is very eager on uh, law and order. And um, very um, uh, is, is a very old man, and um, uh, is like disappointed with the direction his former party, the Conservative CDU Merkel Party, um, uh, uh, went. And um, on the other side, there's Alice Weidel, um, a woman who um, was uh, at Goldman Sachs for a while, um, is um, living in Switzerland and Germany, is. Um, and she is, uh, um, yeah, the neoliberal racist um, uh, part of the of this like leadership uh, duo. Yeah, and she's also a lesbian, and that doesn't freak out uh, the base of the uh, the party. No, not really. I mean, that freaks out more like journalists, I guess. And I, I, I I'm, I'm convinced there are like people among the AfD voters who find that, let's say, irritating. But um, no, there are in this world there are lesbian uh, races, right? And I think uh, <laughs> that's just. Yes, but I'm so used to the American right where, you know, op opposition to sodomy is a core belief. Yeah. Now, what about the other parties? SPD really uh, took a hit, right? Yeah. So it was a big failure for the Social Democrats who um, ended up at 23% or 21% at the end and um, uh, already decided to go into opposition. So their leader, Martin Schulz, um, immediately... Uh, um, uh, explained to go to not build another grand coalition with the um, uh, conservatives. Then we got the liberals who didn't make it to the uh, parliament in the last election and now ended up at 11%. That was a big victory. Their whole like campaign was um, 
about one person, about their leader, Christian Lindner, a very young, um, attractive, dynamic guy. Um, I guess many people could and can identify with who live in cities. Young people, selfish people, the liberals are like an ur, have like a ur neoliberal market friendly um, program. What we got is the Green Party um, with 9% at the end. So they might end up in a coalition of conservatives, liberals and Green Party, the so-called Jamaica coalition. And I guess um, that's the only uh, um, realistic uh, uh, coalition right now because, yeah. What is the politics of the, of the Green Party now? Um, what do they stand for? The Green Party? I mean, the, the Green Party is still... Um, pushing environmental stuff and um, is uh, um, uh, standing for like a more social and social democratic um, um, policies. And I guess there will be there will be like huge compromises to be made uh, um, with the liberals and the conservatives. If we, if we talk about immigration or um, like security, they have they are coming from different directions. I'm speaking with the journalist Lucas Hermsmeyer. What have the other parties done in reaction to the anti-immigrant rhetoric? Have they fought it or embraced it or softened it? Or how have they dealt with it? I think what we have seen in the last years or months, um, uh, these months, is, the, uh, is a huge um, shift to the right uh, of all the parties. Even the left party, although they are saying in their program, in the platform, that um, to not deport people, etc., their leader, Sarah Wagenknecht, um, put out very law and order uh, rhetorics uh, about refugees. Uh, she said that not all the impoverished and poor of the world can come to us. So, and if we talk about the government, uh, the social democrats and um, uh, the conservatives, they've turned from a willkommens culture, the welcome culture, um, to like a culture of deportation uh, in the last um, years. So um, they applied... Uh, policies that get uh, they have like only one goal: get rid of refugees. And what about Merkel? Uh, does she regret having let in all the refugees? Now? I think she is not regretting the uh, the decision back in 2015. She is um, also saying that that can't be repeated. I think these are like her like uh, constant sentences. I'm not regretting uh, the decisions I made, but uh, this is not uh, like a thing that could, should be re repeated. And what about her general standing? Uh, she's pretended over here as a fairly popular politician, despite her dullness. And uh, some people here are even calling her the leader of the free world uh, in opposition to Trump. Um, but what is her standing domestically? First of all, she won the election again. The Conservatives got 33% uh, of the votes. Um, she's going to be the next chancellor for 99%. Um, uh, but she... I guess lost some, and she's still standing, let's say that. She's still standing for like stability and people, you know, voters seeing the world falling apart and seeing Germany doing relatively well, uh, economic-wise. And um, it's a stable um, country, relatively. And um, so people are still voting for her, but I think lost some trust. Some people turned to, to the AfD who are thinking that uh, Merkel got left too many, led too many uh, refugees into the country. And some uh, voters turned uh, to other parties or turned into non-voters who um, are frustrated with her like policy of real, uh, like her policies of opportunism and um, her neoliberal uh, reforms. Well, the neoliberal reforms go back to uh, Schroeder and the SPD, right? The, uh, in the, in the 90s, they created a whole low-wage labor market, uh, which, you know, probably is 
help stimulate employment, but uh, it also comes with an awful lot of instability. Uh, how, how's that playing politically now? I think what we see is like a massive disappointment in social democrats and even in the Green Party who are uh, together in power back from 1908 to 2005, I guess. Um, and um, I think they lost uh, the both part. Both parties lost credibility. Yeah, they like they stood for. Um, social democratic reforms, but just played in a neoliberal um, ideology. And I think that's what many voters are now um, uh, recognizing or like have uh, recognized already. But the SPD has not uh, had any kind of rethink of that strategy? I don't think so. I'm, I see the, this election, or I would see this election as like a big chance to uh, renew itself. But um, as long as Martin Schulz and all these like other um, SPD uh, politicians stay in charge and uh, um, um, remain in leadership, I don't see um, like a new a new social democrats. I think uh, what Labour, the Labour Party in the UK, has done uh, under Corbyn was, you know, uh, uh, was successful, and they turned they left the centrist policies and turned more to to their roots to the left. And I guess that's uh, what the Social Democrats should do. But I don't see it happening uh, yet. And as for Schultz, uh, I recall a few months ago there was some optimism that he was an exciting candidate with uh, some possibility of winning. Um, what happened to him? I think, uh, yeah, um, uh, speaking of um, the, the, the Social Democrats not being Social Democratic anymore, what people thought and hoped uh, was um, that Schulz is turning um, or is leaving the center um, and going in a direction that is like in clear uh, um, opposition, or not in clear opposition, but in strong opposition to the uh, conservatives, to their coalition partner. And what actually happened uh, was Schulz didn't make it clear what, what, where, where the difference uh, lays between social democrats and conservatives. There was like a hope of a renew and a restart maybe even, but that didn't happen. The Merkel's party got about, what, a third of the vote. Uh, that's really not much of a base on which to form a government. What's she going to do going forward? Right now, there's um, almost only one um, like uh, uh, possibility, and that is a co coalition of conservatives, liberals, and green. So um, the Social Democrats already decided to go into opposition, so they won't extend the grand coalition of the two major parties. And all the parties have um, decided long time ago to not correlate with uh, the AfD. The left party and conservatives won't uh, be in one coalition. So it is almost uh, only conservatives, green and liberals um, left who could form a coalition. And would that be politically coherent? Do they agree on things? On very few, I would say. If we talk about... Um, Immigration policies, for example, the Christian Social Union, so the sister party of the of the conservatives who together build the union, are calling for like a clear cap for refugees, and um, neither liberals nor Green Party do want that. The Greens want to shut, um, for example, coal power plants um, and demand like a radical response to the diesel scandal, etc. And liberals and conservatives are po opposing that. Um, the Liberals want to reduce taxes. Greens want to raise taxes for higher income. And um, I think there's just, and in, in general, there's a difference between, in, in law and order politics. The Greens uh, are like less law and order uh, uh, regarding security policies than Liberals and, um, or then not Liberals, than Conservatives.
So what about the relations between the liberals and the Christian Democrats? Do they see eye to eye on things? They disagree on things? What do they have in common or not in common? So I would say they have in common like quite um, quite a lot. They built a coalition um, between um, or in like in, 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 in before the Grand Coalition was in place. And um, I would say the liberals are more employer friendly, are um, more doing more uh, in terms of uh, like um, security rights or like uh, privacy rights, etc. And the conservatives are um, um, still more uh, like a law and order party. There was a time when the Germans thought they might be exempt from, you know, the right wing populism that had been sweeping the European continent and ours as well. That doesn't look to be the case. It does seem like uh, right wing populism now has a, a pretty substantial beachhead in Germany. What about that? I mean, is there, is there, has anybody thought of how to deal with this, how to fight it? I guess there was this um, wrong idea of Germany being um, like free of uh, radical, um, like right wing um, nationalist ideas and uh, um, and, polit- and, and voters. Um, I think that's always been the case. Uh, just um, if you look at Germany's history of the last decades, it was um, economic-wise uh, pretty stable. So um, re- relatively to other countries and the this movement of many um, refugees to Germany just like, I guess, exposed some racism and some uh, nationalist th- thought and ideology among people and among parties. And what about fighting it? Has anybody got an idea on how to beat this thing back? I mean, what we got now in the next um, parliament is an opposition of AfD on the one side and Social Democrats and Left Party probably on the left side, on the other side. And so that's that could be interesting if the Social Democrats are taking like a left um, uh, or like, yeah, going in the left direction and like um, leaving the center a bit. And what we see in, in among the population after or like in election night, um, there was a, a huge protest in front of the building in front of this um, where the AfD got celebrated their victory. So I do expect um, a resistance and an opposition on the streets, but I'm hoping also for an opposition in the parliament. That was Lucas Hemsmeyer, a Brooklyn-based freelance journalist who writes for the U.S. and German press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was the conclusion of Haydn's variations on what would become the German national anthem, performed by Jena Yondo. Next, Margaret Corvid. In April, British Prime Minister Theresa May called a snap election, hoping to expand her thin parliamentary majority. By law, there didn't have to be an election until 2020, but she gambled, and it did not go well. Her Conservative Party lost 13 seats and was forced into coalition with a weird reactionary Northern Irish Party to keep the prime ministership. The surprise was the strong showing by the Labour Party, which got 40% of the popular vote, just a bit over two points behind the Tories, a vindication of the sharp left turn the party has taken under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. The Labour Party has just held its annual conference, and the mood was exuberant. Here's Margaret Corbett, a writer and party activist who is there, with more. As you can tell from her accent, she's originally American, but she's been living in England for years now and is a British citizen. Margaret Corbett. Americans don't really, probably don't really understand what a Labour Party conference is like. It's not much like a Democratic convention. Uh, what, what's the proceeding? What, you know, what, how's it organized? Who's there? Uh, what goes on? Well, the Labour Party conference is basically the, the Democratic organ of the Labour Party. Uh, like the American Democratic Party, the Labour Party is based in the trade union movement. And policy and the decision making of the party is designed to happen from the bottom up. Now, that has always been the way it's supposed to go, but since the advent of Jeremy Corbyn and the massive influx of new members into the party, uh, we've really been exercising the levers of democratic control. So um, this party really was a bottom-up uh, conference, a bottom-up decision-making conference, where we had a chance to change uh, a few of the policies of our party and a few of the rules and the ways that we get stuff done. How many people are there and how are the uh, delegates selected? There were several thousand delegates there. I think it's about 6,000 delegates. Um, and the delegates are selected from the constituency labor party, so the various organizations for labor in the constituencies, which are the various districts where uh, members of parliament come from. The other people who are delegates to the party are representatives of the trade union movement. So, you know, big trade unions for various industries are at the conference. And there's also delegates from our affiliated socialist societies. We all come together from all over the country to uh, to change the way that our party is run. It's very exciting. You're saying there's been a, a, a democratic renovation of the process. Uh, how did things run during the, the Blair years and, and, and the Blair aftermath? Um, basically, what happened was in the Blair years before that and immediately after that, we, we had a party that... While some people thought it was running great, other people thought that members were quite disconnected from control. Um, the people were told how to vote. Um, people were, you know, invited to conferences, kind of a fun, good time and a way to meet other members. But there really wasn't a lot of opportunity to change things in the party. Um, it really was sort of a top-down structure, top-down organization, where members were useful for things like canvassing, knocking doors, of course, donating money, but they weren't seen as people who could, you know, necessarily stand for office, engage uh, the way that things are done in the party itself. Uh, now it's really very different. Okay, so what, uh, what's been going on at the conference? Um, well, at the conference this time, we have been uh, deciding the policies that, that we're going to use uh, over the next year. Um, so really, we've been codifying support for Corbyn's policies, um, which involve a lot of really cool stuff like 
taking social housing back under government control instead of the kind of private finance initiatives that you've had, um, making sure that people can have a council housing, which is, you know, state housing that, that is affordable for people at a social rent, um, a national education service similar to the NHS, where you have um, free and accessible education from cradle to grave, deprivatization of the NHS, uh, stuff like that, making sure that the internal markets within our national health service are gotten rid of, and it really is um, a national health service free at the point of use. So we've been supporting all of those policies. We've also been putting through a bunch of rule changes. Um, instead of 15% of members of the parliamentary labor party, those are our MPs, needed to elect a leader of the party, we've moved that down to 10%, which makes it easier for a left-wing candidate like Jeremy Corbyn to become the leader of the party. We've uh, expanded the National Executive Committee of, of our party and brought in more people representing the membership and more people representing the trade unions. So, so that's another democratic um, decision we've made. Uh, we've made a decision as well to uh, speak out and make sure that hate speech or racially motivated harassment or intimidatory speech is not allowed within the party. Um, of course, that's always been a value of ours, but we've made it even more explicit. So uh, that's really what we've done as members. Another thing that's happened this year is this is the second conference we've had with the Corbyn leadership. And last year, a change was made that um, the conference delegates could actually pull back sections of various policy documents instead of the complete document. So in this conference, we have struck off sections of various policy documents, whether it's on health, whether it's on education or so on, that haven't gone far enough. So we've really been able to say to the National Policy Forum and to the kind of headquarters-based policy development groups, hey, actually, this isn't quite right. We're going to send this back to you. Come back to us uh, next year with something else. Um, so we're actually very excited that, that the party isn't about Jeremy Corbyn. It is, as Jeremy Corbyn said, about us, about us members. And our kind of love for Jeremy Corbyn is really a love of our own people power, now, you mentioned uh, housing at the beginning of that, that list. Uh, what has the political fallout been from the Grenfell uh, fire? Uh, there was a lot of talk in the Labor Party conference around Grenfell. Immediately after the Grenfell tragedy happened, there were a lot of people saying, hey, you really don't want to politicize this tragedy. But all of the people speaking from the top stage um, and also at various fringes and at an amazing parallel conference, the World Transformed, which was put on by Momentum, the Corbyn pressure group, uh, everyone has said the true thing that Grenfell is a political tragedy, that it is the gentrification, um, you know, people talk about housing development and housing regeneration, but it winds up basically pushing people out, um, social cleansing and stuff like that. And you get people in these tower blocks that are not well maintained, that are not uh, fire safe, and, and they become fire traps. So that, that sort of narrative of gentrification, the narrative of austerity that's been going on at our local council levels really led to the Grunfeld tragedy. And that was said not just from the floor by various um, delegates. We had a delegate who lost several friends um, in the Grenfell tragedy. She lives in the Kensington um, Council area where it's from. And, and she was great. And there were a few other people from the fire and emergency services who spoke about it, but also from, from Jeremy Corbyn, from members of the shadow cabinet saying, 
that Grenfell is a political issue, that we have to have proper social housing, proper regeneration, and we also need to remove the pay cap on our public sector workers, including our emergency workers, and, and really kind of revitalize the, the whole way we do housing. And, and that's what Grenfell is about. So this tragedy doesn't happen in vain. It is a very moving sort of, sort of response to Grenfell. Yeah, you mentioned gentrification, but there's also a contribution from uh, the Homegrown Austerity Plan, right? Uh, yeah, the Homegrown Austerity Plan is, is really a thing. Uh, when you look at housing in the United Kingdom, um, people see housing, um, you know, the capitalist class, the rentier class sees housing as a land bank and investment sink, um, not homes for people. So that narrative, you know, comes out from the Tories Um very strongly. And, and so they don't want to do things like, you know, build 100,000 new homes and build um, affordable homes for a social rent, change the renting laws and stuff like that, which is what the Labour Party wants to do. That's anathema to the Tories. But, um, you know, we want to end austerity. We want to have you know, an economy where we have great jobs, manufacturing jobs, knowledge jobs, all kinds of jobs, great education, great housing, putting these things all together, all costed, all really well uh, looked through and planned. Um, and that's basically a powerful and integrated argument against austerity and against neoliberalism. And it's unprecedented. It's unprecedented to hear something like this from a mainstream party. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the partial privatization of the NHS. I don't think Americans are really up on that. What's been going on? So over the last several decades, um, we've had, you know, the NHS, which is this amazing, you know, cradle to grave healthcare system that was put in in the middle of the last century by Nye Bevan, you know, after the post-war years and the in the labor government that came in. Um, that's been an amazing heritage of our of our country here in the UK, but that's been changed. Um, privatization has come in, internal markets have come in, where NHS trusts, which is a local um, administrative body to administer NHS services, are supposed to find private firms to provide a lot of these services. And you've gotten into situations where you've got Virgin and companies like that offering healthcare, and does it save money? Nope. It actually costs more money to maintain and administer these internal markets than they could ever save. Um, but here in the Labour Party, we're actually going back against that, um, that we want to get rid of these internal markets. We want to get, a, get rid of these public-private partnerships um, and really just make the NHS national again, nationalized fully again, you know, along with rail and other things. Um, because, you know, it was said from the top stage, you cannot control what you do not own. So we really need a truly nationalized, truly state and, you know, people controlled NHS in, in order to make sure that that it works properly. I mean, I've got a, a doctor's surgery in Plymouth. I have to wait three or four weeks to get to the doctor. If you need any kind of specialist treatment, physical or mental health care, you can be waiting six months to a year. Um, you know, you want to talk about rationing and stuff like that. Because of the cuts, we've got that here. And there's some really poor health outcomes. You know, life expectancy among working class and poor people is going down. So we need to fix that. And that's what we're talking about at conference. Now, of course, our propagandists here will say that the long waits uh, are the result of socialized medicine. And if you just privatize everything, the miracle of the market, you know, will uh, reduce those waiting lists to zero. That's not true, of course, right? 
Yeah, it's kind of like a bucket of lies because the NHS worked great when we had it under full national control, under full state control. Um, you know, there were obviously efficiencies that need to be made in various areas, but, you know, the capacity of that control enabled that to happen. And unfortunately, when when you're talking about you know, farming out various NHS services to private groups, private surgeries and stuff like that. And then you need to be cutting all of this, all of this NHS funding. You know, you can't find the efficiencies with the market. You know, I'm talking about my surgery again, Ocean Health in Plymouth. You know, there was a private GP practice running that surgery and they've left. You know, it's being run by sort of substitute doctors, fill in doctors called locums at the moment because there wasn't enough money for that practice to operate efficiently or to actually make any kind of a benefit to them with the huge patient lists that they had. So the market failed us. It failed me and my husband personally at our doctor's surgery, and it's failing people all over the UK. So we need to put that back so we can actually make sure that our allocations are based on need rather than on, on some sort of profit. I'm speaking with the writer and Labour Party activist Margaret Corvett. What happened at the conference around Brexit, which is a big mess right now? What, what, what's the current Labour Party thinking? There really is a lot of disagreement in the party in, around Brexit in some ways. Some people want to have uh, the single market. Some people don't. Some people want to have freedom of movement, and some people don't. And interestingly, one thing that happened uh, after the first day of the conference, we have a priorities ballot where delegates vote on which policy areas are going to be a priority. And Brexit wasn't one of those priorities. I mean, one of the reasons for that was because we don't really know what we're going to do until the negotiations develop further. It's not really time for that. But the other thing is, even uh, people who disagree on whether we should have left or whether we should have voted to remain, even people who disagree on stuff like freedom of movement in the common market, all agree that we need to make sure that working conditions are, are what's focused on and, and, and pay, you know, people on the right wing, uh, political parties, you know, UKIP, the Tories complain that migrants are the ones pushing down wages and stuff like that. But that's not people who emigrate for work. That is unscrupulous employers. So what we've really tried to do is come up with policies that appeal to everybody on that divide, like cracking down on unscrupulous employers, making sure that wages and earning and working conditions are consistent whether somebody is an immigrant, uh, working immigrant or not. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Jeremy did say very well that the three million Europeans who live here in the UK need to be able to get to stay. That had a huge uh, round of applause. But I think, you know, personally, I think we need to go further than that. I think we need to keep uh, freedom of movement and maybe we need to keep the single market. But we also need to make sure that we have the autonomy and the independence as we leave the European Union to come up with stuff like nationalized rail, like nationalized postal service, re fully nationalizing the NHS and so on. A lot of that is stuff that we couldn't necessarily do under the current terms of the common market. You mentioned momentum earlier. Um, tell us about that. 
Momentum is an amazing pressure group, um, kind of an organization, a membership organization that came up right after Jeremy got elected, because we knew on the left that people on the right, including in the Parliamentary Labor Party, were going to do as much as they could to push uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his kind of politics out, because they thought that it wasn't um, an electable set of policies. So momentum groups formed in parallel with labor groups around the country in order to sort of welcome new people into the party, help people understand how the party works and to push uh, the policies forward. And when momentum started like two years ago, it was very bare bones organization. But since then, amazing stuff has happened. They came up with some amazing apps So like the delegates um, who are going to the conference could subscribe not just to the Labor Party conference app, but also to the Momentum app. And we would get texts saying, you know, there's a vote going to happen. This is what how that vote works. This is how we recommend you vote on that vote in order to support Jeremy Corbyn. And that worked really well because all of the left wing um, choices and all of the votes basically came through sometimes by an order of two or three to one, you know, when we were uh, voting on the conference arrangements committee, which is a very influential committee that will um, run our conference next year. Uh, all of our uh, left-wing candidates, Seema Chadwani and Billy Hayes, won by like a factor of two to one or three to one. The same thing happened on all the votes. The momentum groups have been educating us have been giving us a sense of political organization and not just communicating online, but also getting uh, activists out into various places. During the general election we just had in June, um, there were uh, Momentum members um, using an app called My Nearest Marginal that were able to, and I think that might have been, might not have been the name of the app, but they were using an app about marginal seats and saying, okay, I live here, this is a safe labor seat or this is a safe Tory seat. How, where can I go where my door knocking, my volunteering could actually help a labor candidate win? And so back in Plymouth, um, during the general election, we had bunches and bunches of Corbyn supporters coming from the hinterlands to come and help us. That sort of mobilization was really awesome and really effective. And it also helped us win through our votes at conference. Um, Because of momentum, largely, conference was kind of a triumphalist romp of the victory of socialist values and Corbynist values dominating now within the Labour Party. You know, we were expecting a a bitter, vicious fight, but it's basically even people who were very skeptical of Corbyn have said, okay, this is definitely the dominant discourse in the party. You guys have won and you even had, you know, longtime enemies of, of Jeremy Corbyn, like Tom Watson, the deputy leader in his speech last night, leading the chant, you know, it, with the delegates in the audience, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, um, and, and saying, you know, hope, Jeremy Corbyn's hope has won out over fear. So, you know, groups like Momentum, all of the kind of ancillary Facebook groups and online aggregations online have really gotten us to this point where our numbers, our people power, our political consciousness is at a very, very high level. And if somebody who's been on the left for over 20 years, this is monumentally exciting to me and it should be to people in the left uh, across the world. I mean, after the kind of very scary vote that we've had in Germany, which is kind of frightening, this is a little bit of hope that we're having here. We could have Jeremy Corbyn in number 10 in the next general election. 
What happened to the Blairites? Have they just disappeared? Have been routed? Are they on the sidelines plotting? What are they up to? All of the above. They they were not very visible at conference. You definitely had a very public narrative of support for Corbyn. There were a few, um, you know, centrist events. We call them centrists now rather than Blairites. It seems there were, you know, there's a centrist group called Labor First, which, uh, you know, they had their little broadsheets that uh, delegates could pick up when we came in, in counterposition to the broadsheets from Corbynist groups. Uh, they had a couple of events, very small events. Events, whereas our events were huge, the uh, events uh, around the world transformed. The, the uh, Momentum Conference were huge, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, shadow cabinet members partying at the Novara Media Party well into the night. Whereas um, the uh, centrist gatherings were tiny and kind of full of people licking their wounds. But are they plotting? They're always plotting, but, but, you know, we're plotting too, you know, we're doing it in kind of a consensual and open way, but we have to keep our strategy going and make sure that we can keep um, momentum with a small M, keep the Corbynist uh, narrative going and make sure that our views are what gets into the next local elections, which are coming up in May and the next general election, whenever that's called, because we've proved that people are responding to our message, not just within the bubble of the party, but on the doorstep for people who don't engage with politics. What, what does it look like for a general election? When might that happen? Well, we've just had a snap election in June. Um, Theresa May has her conference coming up next week um, for, the, for the Tory party. And there are people in the Tories that are definitely wanting to kick her out and be the PM instead. Boris Johnson is one of those. She's got a fragile deal with the DUP, the Ulster Unionist uh, Party that is really reactionary and right wing. And, you know, if anything falls apart, if confidence in her government falls apart, there could be just a coup at the top or there could be um, another snap election called if she can't form a government. Um, so the longer that she holds on from her point of view, the better. So, you know, it's really, really up in the air. Some people think that there could be a next general election in May and some people think that there won't be one until 20. 22. Over here in the Labour Party, we want a general election as soon as possible because, you know, the head of steam is with us. The polls are with us. People are moving more and more towards Corbyn and the Labour Party. And uh, so for from a Tory point of view, a general election is kind of the last thing that they want. But whether they can hold on to their weak and wobbly uh, coalition of chaos is another question. And uh, let me close with the devil's advocate question. You know, the uh, Go for it. your description of the enthusiasm uh, around uh, the conference and within the Labour Party broadly is is moving. But you know, what are the possibilities that the general public doesn't share uh, this point of view, and they don't like the socialist sounding politics, and uh, and they just want to go back in that old um, English uh, conservatism? How broad is your appeal? Are you confident that it really is growing across um, the broad uh, population? There's a lot of really interesting cephalogical data that's been coming out around this. In the general election, the younger uh, cohorts, the cohorts in geographical areas that vote remain, um, more educated cohorts and stuff like that totally went labor. But you're seeing a lot of really poor folks, really isolated folks, folks who voted UKIP in 2014 or 2015, 
folks that are in the lumpen proletariat, if they vote at all, a lot of them, you know, either don't vote, vote UKIP or have voted Tory. There were a few areas where the strong and stable message worked pretty well. Mansfield, Dudley North, um, one of our constituencies in Plymouth, Plymouth Moorview, they definitely respond to Theresa May. But the longer the Brexit goes on and the more the kind of inflation and unemployment um, around Brexit goes on, I think the less enamored people are going to be with the Tories. So I think we, we have won over a large segment of the population and we seem to be going very well with that. That seems to be increasing. So I am cautiously optimistic that we can definitely win over people even who who wouldn't necessarily know that what what they want is socialism but a lot of the policies the chance to get a good job the chance to get a house a living wage a proper social rent protection against exploitative working conditions exploitative private landlords and general kind of humanistic values whether they call it socialist or not they want some or all of that stuff. And that's what we have on offer here in the Labor Party. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this. Another take on the national anthem. This is Beethoven's Variations on God Save the King, or Queen, performed by Alfred Brendel. Till next week, bye. <laughs>